Hi, I'm Natalie Mast and you're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Today, I'm joined by the University of Western Australia's William Bowe, aka the Poll Bludger, who's going to talk to us about polls and possible outcomes in the July 2nd federal election. William, thanks for joining me. Great pleasure. Let's get straight into it. The government currently holds a 19-seat majority in the lower house. Five weeks out from the election, what are the polls telling us? Does it look like there's a nationwide swing against the coalition large enough to see the government change hands? It looks like there's a nationwide swing against the coalition. Uh, it doesn't look like it's large enough to see governments change hands at this stage with, you know, obviously the provisos you have to attach about there being five weeks to go and even one week being a long time in politics. Uh, the, the, most of the polls that you'll have been seeing in the media have been saying 50-50. Occasionally they might have Labor a little bit ahead, but in aggregate the trend of the polling is 50-50. Now, uh, that's great news if you're a journalist writing up a poll because you can point to that and say that it's a cliffhanger and everyone loves a cliffhanger. Everyone wants to keep their readership tuning into the next exciting episode. So uh, that's been good from a journalistic perspective, but from a uh, from an electoral perspective, 50-50 is unlikely to get Labor over the line. Labor have an intrinsic disadvantage in that it is they who are trying to unseat sitting members in order to win seats. Uh, If you've got a sitting member in your seat, that's a nice little boost to you and it's a little hurdle that Labor needs to overcome in all of the seats that it most needs to win. As they discovered in 1998, under very similar circumstances to this time, you had uh, John Howard uh, brought uh, the, the coalition to power in a landslide, just as Tony Abbott did in 2013. In 1998, there was a big backlash against the Howard government at the first election. It was very dangerously attempting to bring a GST in as its main policy platform. And uh, Labor won the two-party preferred vote, but they didn't haul in those seats that they needed to win. Of course, as we all know, John Howard remained in power for another uh, nine years after that. Fundamentally, the reason that he was able to get over that hurdle in 1998 was that he had all these newly elected city members fresh to the electorate. They'd build up a name and a profile within their local community for the first time. They were contesting their seats as sitting members for the first time, and the, 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 the Labor candidates in uh, a number of those key elections just weren't able to do enough to get over the line, and uh, John Howard managed to win the election despite losing the national vote. And while I don't want to formally concede defeat tonight, I do have to tell you it would be difficult uh, for us to reach a majority position from that position, and uh, therefore I think a win by us is unlikely. But I can say this, this is the biggest number of seats won by a first-term opposition party in this country ever.
That said then, at this stage, where are you seeing the swings against the government, most obviously? Um, most obviously in Western Australia. Uh, Western Australia, I, I think, is the, the big outlier state in terms of how big the swing will be. Because in Western Australia, the government is coming off such a high base. They got over over 58% of the two-party preferred vote in 2013. They had uh, been doing exceptionally well at uh, federal level in Western Australia for a very long time. And... Uh, joined in the national swing on top of that in 2013 and reached a position, an unsustainably high position. So in Western Australia, you've got, if I might say, both push and pull factors working against the government. You have the fact that there's a particularly big uh, degree of slack for Labor to take up in Western Australia. They're coming up an historically low base. There's a lot of uh, voters out there who uh, wouldn't need much persuading to head back to their natural party of orientation at Labor. And as well as that, there are specific circumstances in Western Australia that are working against the coalition, uh, most of them relating to the uh, unpopularity of the state government. The state government has been in power since 2008. It's uh, on the nose, it's passed its use by date. People that uh, it will really struggle to get elected next year. And the uh, related difficulties from this are that there's, uh, it, it's unclear whether or not Colin Barnett will survive to the next state election. Uh, laid over on top of that is that the uh, when you ask the, the state government what's, what ails Western Australia, they'll tell you that a Canberra is to blame. Western Australia isn't getting its share of GST revenue. So this adds up to a really unhelpful set of messages for the, co for the coalition. You've essentially got the state government telling you that all their problems with the federal government. So you've got a, a strong cue there not to support the state coalition from their own party. Uh, we actually had in Western Australia the state treasurer here at Mike Nahan uh, basically coming out and say that you should vote for DA Wang, the Palmer United Party senator, which was obviously extraordinary. So you know you've got a you've got a fearsome uh, impression of disarray for the, the Conservative parties in Western Australia in a way that doesn't have a clear parallel elsewhere. You've got, a, you've got federal and state issues working against the, the coalition and you have got the fact that Labor are coming off an unsustainably low base. So I, I really, it, if nothing else is clear at this point, I think it's very clear that there's going to be an extremely solid swing to Labor in Western Australia. Western Australia, though, is very rarely the decisive state in elections. It's the, you know, the, the last one whose results come in. Very occasionally we'll get an election that's close enough that everyone's hanging out to see how Western Australia will go. Uh, and if that's the case, you, that, that, would, that would be a nervous position on election night for, for the coalition to be in. But uh, really, more often than not, elections are decided in New South Wales and Queensland. And uh, there, I think the situation is looking a little bit more sedate. So other than Western Australia, are you seeing local issues playing a larger than expected roles within any of the other states? Uh, the, the standout example of a local issue infringing on federal politics over the lead up to the federal election campaign has been in South Australia, where I think the government uh, acted against its instincts in awarding this $52 billion contract for the construction of the, the, the Navy's next generation of submarines to a country, to a company 
that has committed to build them in Adelaide. And this has been the, the single dominant issue of South Australian politics in many years, that the, the micro level, this specific project, and also the fact that the schedule of major defence projects has such an enormous bearing on South Australia's economy and the challenges that South Australia faces as a declining industrial manufacturing state. And there's a lot of talk in South Australian politics about the valley of death, which they've got looming up. They've got the end of one huge defence project, another one's not arcing up for a couple of years after. It's a really major structural economic problem for South Australia, the timings of these sorts of defence contracts that have such a bearing on the, on, the, on their economy. So in every way, psychologically, economically, this was an enormous issue, the, the, the awarding of this submarine contract. I think, as I said, that if the, uh, in, in, from the coalition's perspective in their own perfect world, they probably would have done what they kept indicating what they were going to do during Tony Abbott's prime ministership, which was to give that contract to the Japanese and leave uh, con- take construction away from Adelaide. I think uh, the Tony Abbott- Abbott's government was quite bullish about doing that because they felt that they could take South Australia for granted from an electoral perspective. There's uh, only one classically marginal seat up for play in this, uh, in this election in South Australia from a Labor versus Liberal perspective. Our future submarines, 12 regionally superior submarines, will be built here at Osborne in South Australia. But then what we saw in South Australia has been this gigantic backlash against both major parties and the emergence of the Nick Xenophon team as a third political force, not just a minor party in South Australia, but with enough of a base to match it with both of the major parties. We saw this in the Senate vote in 2013. The Nick Xenophon team outpolled Labor in the Senate in 2013. And now Nick Xenophon is making a really determined effort to parlay that support into the lower house to actually challenging sitting members. And that's made the Liberals extremely nervous about a number of their seats in South Australia, including including Christopher Pine's seat of Sturt, that they would ordinarily have felt that they wouldn't be under any trouble from Labor in those seats, so why do they have to worry about them? Now they've got this insurgency coming out of nowhere that's overturned the whole two-party set of assumptions, and now the coalition, the government, has been taking South Australia very seriously indeed, and making this enormous decision, a, a gigantic project, on the basis of South Australian electoral considerations. And uh, I think that uh, very likely that will steady the ship for the, the government in South Australia. On the other hand, we're seeing more recent polling coming through saying that certainly the Nick Xenophon team, uh, perhaps the reaction of South Australian voters is not going to be gratitude at the government for having delivered them this project. It's going to be, well, if Nick Xenophon has delivered us this victory, he can deliver us more if we stick by him. So that's a real wild card in this election. You know, does, do we clearly... Nick Xenophon team is going to do well out of the new Senate electoral system. They're going to win multiple seats in South Australia. If they also win seats in the lower house, then that uh, introduces a a wild card that uh, most sort of prognostications about the post-electoral environment haven't taken into account. So last night I argued in the conversation that I thought Bill Shorten had won the debate, but his victory was unlikely to swing many voters. At this stage, what is likely to impact on the undecided? It's telling that the leaders' debate 
uh, happened when it did, long before the election and with plenty enough time for everyone to forget about it by the time the, the election comes around. And uh, this is the sad truth about debates these days. Both sides of politics have been keen to see them muted as... Uh, as, as factors that might swing the election one way or the other. So we're seeing them held early in the campaign. We're seeing them... The, the, the both parties are quite happy them for them to not be telecast on free-to-air television, or at least to see them be outrated by My Kitchen Rules or whatever it was uh, last night that so many more people were watching than the debate. It, uh, it, it runs against the instincts of, you know, modern... Mm, smoothly manage professional politics to have a wild card in play. They both want the, the, the event to be stage managed. They want it to set it up with uh, rules so that they're unlikely to be tripped up by any unpredictable occurrences. So yet again, we saw a debate which, you know, all of the all of the, the, the commentators could quite reasonably say afterwards, well, that was boring, that was a nil-all draw, no one took blood. No, no one made any stuff ups. It was a non-event. Uh, it's been so many years since we last had a debate about which that couldn't be said. That's the way the parties like it, and uh, they just basically want to be able to say, "Look, we didn't shoot a contest. We weren't afraid of a debate. We had a debate. I thought it was a good debate. Now let's move on and uh, move to a more sort of stage-managed campaign process." So, in terms of what might swing the election. Uh, basically, what's going to swing it is uh, nothing that's happening over five weeks before it's held. We've uh, got, the, uh, I think, the, the, so the electorate has not engaged. They, they wouldn't even engage in the early stages of a campaign of normal length. For a campaign of this length, I think there's a determined lack of interest in the campaign. I think people are switching off when politics is coming on the news. And I think uh, what we're seeing, if you watch the evening news, is that the... The television networks are accommodating this reality. They're not leading with political stories. It's uh, the political daily campaign rap is getting pushed further and further down the story order. And uh, I, I don't think it'll be until the last three weeks that uh, it really starts to engage consciousness of the public and voters start to think, they start to switch on and think seriously about how they're going to vote. And that's when the campaign's going to begin in earnest. That's when we're going to get the serious showpiece policy announcement that the parties hope will swing it. And also, I think that's when the uh, mass advertising is going to begin in earnest. We've seen very little advertising in the electronic media to this stage because uh, clearly, you know, they've got limited war chests and it would be a waste of money to go this far out. I will be really interested to see what the advertising strategies look like later on, how positive they are, how negative they are, the precise attack lines that they used. So far, we've seen none of that. You know, that the, the, you... you, you Watch the evening news. You are not being uh, bombarded during the commercial breaks with attack ads. And uh, until you do see that, I, I feel like uh, we who are watching the campaign only really have half a grip on what it's about because it, it, it hasn't begun in earnest yet. When you back the Liberal plan for a strong new economy, you're backing more jobs. Because creating a more diversified economy is the key to growth. Our innovation and science program... So let's just uh, turn our attention to the Greens and their chances of adding to Adam Bant's seat of Melbourne in the lower house. How are they faring in Victoria, which is where they appear most likely to be able to win uh, additional seats? And have they started to make advantageous preference deals? 
The rise of the Greens has been this sort of slow-burning political phenomenon going back to the 1990s. And it's been a sort of two-step-forwards, one-step-back process for the Greens. Occasionally, they'll have a less good election result, which they certainly did in 2013. They didn't match their exceptionally strong performance in 2010 and 2013. This isn't the first time they've hit one of these roadblocks. Uh, When you step back and look at the big picture, though, the Greens really do look like they are uh, making long-term inroads into the new generation of voters that are coming along. As younger voters are coming through, they haven't been socialised into the major parties in the way that voters traditionally were in previous generations and the Greens are making a really appealing pitch to them. They've got a philosophy which appeals to young voters I think particularly better than that of the Labor Party in this day and age. Young idealists don't want to be part of a sort of programmatic party of perceived careerists which is how the Labor Party looks and uh, in in electorates which are dominated by young people. We have seen the electorate of Melbourne, for instance, not only did uh, Adam Bant win it in 2007, he, uh, in 2010, he retained it in 2013 in very inauspicious circumstances. The Liberal Party directed preferences to Adam Bant in the Melbourne electorate in 2010. That made life a lot easier for him in overcoming the Labor candidate there when Lindsay Tanner retired. But then in 2013, as part of their big anti-carbon tax, uh, you know, trying to tie Labor and the Greens together in this sort of left of centre, out of the mainstream picture. Uh, They said, right, we're going to advertise that fact by directing preferences against the Greens in Melbourne. And for a long time before the 2013 election, uh, there was a presumption of many people that that was going to be lethal for Adam Bant. But it wasn't. He's uh, he increased by ten percent on the on the uh, t- on, on the primary vote, and he held his seat without any meaningful swing against him at all in two party preferred terms. Furthermore, since then the state electorate of Melbourne has been won by the Greens after some disappointing defeats at previous elections. So, in particular, in these inner city electorates where you overwhelmingly have a population in their twenties and their thirties, very few people older than the forties are, are living in these really core inner-city electorates. You've got a whole generation of people who don't feel any affinity at all with the Labor Party, and that has really radically transformed these electorates and uh, made them highly winnable for the Greens. The difficulty the Greens always have, though, is that they uh, are faced against entrenched and, uh, in in many cases, uh, sitting members from the Labor Party who were very popular on the left. So in terms of uh, a sort of state-by-state analysis of how the Greens are going, in New South Wales, I'll be very surprised if they win any seats in the lower house because their obvious natural target electorates there are Sydney and Grandlet. They're held by Tanya Plibersek and Anthony Albanese. 
Whatever it is that uh, people think about the Labor Party on the left, they are huge fans of those members, and uh, I don't think they're going to knock over those seats until those members leave. It's a different story in the Victorian electorate of Batman, where Labor's uh, member there, David Feeney, is certainly not a hero of the left, and he's had all sorts of trouble during the campaign. So I think that's the big show for the Greens. I'm, I'm certain Adam Bant will retain Melbourne. The question becomes, do they win that second seat in Melbourne as well? It's amazing how powerful a piece of paper can be. This federal election, your vote will help shape Australia. Voting rules for the Senate have changed. You'll have new ways to decide your preferences on your white Senate ballot paper. You can either number at least six boxes above the line for the parties or groups of your choice, or you can number at least 12 boxes below the line for individual candidates of your choice. So, William, this is a special election, not just in terms of it being a double dissolution, so the entire Senate is up for election, but because there have been changes to the voting method for the Senate as well. You've done some modelling on possible outcomes, which is available on your Paul Bludger blog. Can you just explain briefly what you think the possible outcomes could be? Uh, Nobody nobody exactly knows, precisely because it's a new system, and it's going to put voters in a position that they've never been in before. It's been very simple for you as a voter, pretty much since Federation, to say that, okay, here's the party that I'm going to support. Now my chore for Saturday is to go to the polling booth and to register my support for that party in the in the usual manner, which in the lower house you'll pick up a how-to-vote card, you'll fill out the how-to-vote card, and uh, in recent years in the Senate you'll just number that party box above the line. Now what the Senate ballot paper is going to be telling you is that you have to number six boxes. And that is going to be a choice that only a minority of voters will have fallen through. So they're going to be looking at their ballot papers, they're going to be voting for the party of their choice, and then they're going to be picking out another five options on the very large smorgasbord that's available to them. And we don't know exactly how voters are going to behave in those circumstances. Many of them will undoubtedly be be guided by a had a vote card, at least for the major parties. The really small micro parties who have been making such a difference in the Senate in recent years, they don't have the support base to actually have people handing out how to vote cards at their at, at polling booths. So you're really going to have this sort of wild card where we don't exactly know how the great mass of voters are going to behave under those circumstances. Nonetheless, if you make a few what I what I hope are, are reasonable assumptions about voter behaviour, then uh, the fact that we are in a double dissolution election means that those 12th seats are still a possibility for smaller parties, if not quite parties on the Australian motoring enthusiast party level of insignificance. They got elected from 0.5% in Victoria. I don't think we're going to... We're clearly not going to be seeing victory from 0.5% of the vote anymore, but we certainly might see victory from about 3% of the vote. And uh, there are quite a few Senate candidates around the place outside of the established party system who are capable of doing that, particularly given that we have the Palmer United Party, who got 5% of the vote nationally in 2013. They've completely collapsed as a political force. That leaves a pretty big chunk of the vote available. Uh, Freeze it up for other micro-parties and, you know, independent candidates running in the Senate. So, you know, a lot of parties that maybe only got 2% last time, now they're going to get 3% and they get a little bit more on preferences if they're the kind of party that does well on preferences. So I think in a lot of states, that 12th seat is still going to go to a couple of that 
outsiders, and we're still going to see a pretty unruly uh, crossbench from the government's perspective. Uh, the one thing that is easy to predict, though, I think, is that the Nick Xenophon team is definitely going to win multiple Senate seats this time, most likely three, and that that is going to perhaps make life a little bit more manageable for the government to the extent that there will be a broadly mainstream party in charge of a block of free votes. It won't quite be hurting that as many cats as they used to, but uh, they will still... I don't think that the coalition Senate numbers are going to substantially improve. They've got 33 at the moment. They're going to come out with about the same. They're still going to need to get as many crossbench votes as they used to, but uh, because uh, because that crossbench is going to be given a little bit more structure by that next Xenophon block, things are going to be marginal easy for the government. But if the government thought that they were going to hold a double dissolution election under a new Senate system, reset the Senate and go back to the good old days when the Senate was a lot, uh, managing the Senate was more straightforward, I think they're, they're going to be broadly disappointed. Thanks for joining me. We'll speak later in the campaign about key seats to watch, new policies and updates in the polls. Thanks to everyone for listening to the Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. If you like this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment on iTunes.